Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in. Happy New Year to you all, although doesn't it sound an even more banal proclamation than usual, uh, given the context in which this year opens and some of the themes which make it quite a, quite such a dark start to the year, of course, we'll be exploring together. So as ever with the podcast, we've got a lot to get through. If you're running, start running. If you're ironing, start ironing. You'll have a few neatly crisp items, garments by the end of this. Uh, If it's okay with you, I'm going to start with a few reflections on Brexit. I'll keep it short uh, because you'll be fed up with Brexit. But I'll tell you, it's quite dangerous to be fed up with Brexit. We've got to we've got to keep our eyes out and ears alert, as I'll explain in a moment. Then we'll come to questions. We'll come to questions. Actually, you're, you've been busy during this uh, silly Christmas New Year period uh, with brilliant questions and points. And uh, I'll break up some of my reflections with your much more profound thoughts and questions because they relate to the kind of things I'll be talking about. And for those of you who've joined us for the first time as a positive start to the new year, thank you for joining in. Uh, This is the Rock and Roll Politics community, takes many wacky forms, and you can email too uh, anytime you wish. I'll give you the email details. I'll give it to you now, actually. Now, I can never remember, so I'm going to have to just look them up, look up the address. So if you want to uh, write to me with any thoughts or questions, it's steverick14 at icloud.com. That's steverick, S-T-E-V-E-R-I-C, one four at icloud.com. And I'll put it on all the podcast spiel, you know, where wherever you get it, Spotify or iTunes or whatever. So off we go. Just a few thoughts on that Brexit deal uh, announced on Christmas Eve and then the debate that followed uh, kind of hours before the deadline was reached. It isn't a deal. I was wondering maybe you were, given how much time we've reflected on Brexit in this podcast, how the two sides were going to reconcile all the fundamental differences that we've been exploring since 1848. Uh, The level playing field from the EU side, the desire for a kind of pure fantasist sovereignty on the British government side, etc, etc. The Irish question, which has tormented British history for centuries and has been at the heart of the Brexit question. How was that kind of sorted over a pizza with old Frosty, our negotiator, and Barnier late at night in some dungeon in Brussels or the one of the Whitehall departments here? And the answer is, it's like a twist in a whodunit. They haven't answered 
the questions. They haven't resolved the dilemmas. On Christmas Eve, Johnson at the press conference said, we, the, the, our negotiators want to thank all the negotiators. They rubbed the philosopher's stone and resolved the dilemmas. They haven't. All that has happened is that all the thorny questions have been kicked into the long grass. Brexit isn't done. Just very briefly, because I know you will sigh at this as you're embarking on a 5K or the ironing, the level playing field versus sovereignty debate. Johnson has proclaimed this as a, a cakeist treaty. Uh, call it cakeism if you want, you know, implying Britain has had its cake and eaten it, which was its original very naive uh, negotiating objective in those far-off times when Theresa May was Prime Minister. It's just not the case. He's claiming that uh, Britain will have the benefits of a tariff-free trade deal, and yet the right to diverge and therefore has a kind of pure approach to sovereignty. But as you'll all know, I'm just kind of highlighting this as an example of the provisional nature of this treaty. If Britain does diverge, the EU has the right via a mechanism of two sides. It's not called the ECJ on the EU side, but in effect it is the ECJ. Uh, The EU would have the right to slap on tariffs against the UK uh, if it regards the divergence as in any way threatening, as it well might do. So that whole debate we've been having since 1848 will revive at some point when the ERG or other hardliners from the Tory side say, come on, what about our sovereignty? Why don't we diverge to produce this super-duper modern economy? And Johnson will say, well, 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 tariffs and all the rest of it. And But he'll be under huge pressure to do so. Maybe he'll want to do so. And then we're back to the old dance once more. It's the same with Northern Ireland, where the protocol is very provisional. Much to be still resolved in terms of the Irish question. And isn't it interesting how the Irish government very cleverly are giving Northern Ireland things like access to the Erasmus scheme for students, the health insurance that other EU people get. The place to be if you live in Britain is Northern Ireland. Talk about best of both worlds. Um, But that thorny question has been far from answered by this protocol. That was the area, of course, where the UK government was threatening to break international law. They then negotiated a kind of temporary plastering over the cracks. Still loads to go on that front. And then there's the 80% of the British economy that left without a deal. So things like financial services, that deal, it won't be called a deal, but you know what I mean, arrangement, is being negotiated over the coming months. Oh, my God, I'm sorry to kind of make this start of the year even more depressing, but Brexit is still with us. The difference is that the political temperature in relation to Brexit will fall. Uh, Often temperatures rising and falling are very deceptive because political journalists are gripped by the soap opera of politics and therefore the soap opera of Brexit. Can Theresa May survive? Will she win the vote? If not, what will happen? Uh, Can Johnson get his pledge to get the withdrawal bill through, come what may, do or die by October the 31st? If not, is he finished? These kind of highly charged dramas propelled Brexit to the top of bulletins for 250 years. Now, it won't be as highly charged as that in the coming months, but it will be just as significant uh, because none of it's done. 
And that was the trick. Johnson, with that great swagger uh, last year, said, that's the deadline, December the 31st. Not moving beyond December the 31st. Come what may. And therefore, the deadline provided a challenge. And the challenge was addressed by knocking everything into the long grass. Brexit is still with us. Dun, 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 dun. And of course, so is the pandemic. It's interesting that there is a common theme between the two in terms of Johnson's leadership. Oh, yeah. No, I'm going to wait for the pandemic. I will make the link with Johnson's leadership. But I thought, given that some of you asked some brilliant questions over Christmas and New Year about Brexit, I'll come to them right away, if that's okay. There's one here from uh, Chris Callant. Uh, Chris Callant actually is an old colleague of mine. Nice to hear from him. And Chris says, just a quick question. Well, Chris, that is the most... uh, how can I put it, unreliable opening gambit to any question because he asked quite a long one, Uh, but it's an interesting one. He says, now take a deep breath if you're out exercising, listening, or whatever you're doing, if you're just sitting down knitting, as some are. Uh, Chris says, many people have argued that the narrow margin of victory for leave in the 2016 Brexit referendum meant that there was no mandate for a hard Brexit and that instead a departure should have been as soft as possible to respect the 48% of voters who wanted to stay. And that, that certainly didn't happen. Anyway, Chris goes on to say, but if we accept that argument, isn't the inverse true? Namely, that a 52-48 win for Remain could have been taken as a mandate for the UK's existing level of membership, but not for any more integration, to reflect the 48 who wanted to get out in that hypothesis. Yeah, it's a good question. And the answer is, frankly, integration, further integration, if Britain had stayed in, would have been almost impossible. It's forgotten now, but and when I think about this, it seems to me that Britain was kind of doomed to leave the European Union uh, once uh, Cameron became Prime Minister, because the 2010 coalition, so many of the seeds of the current crises are to do with that 2010 coalition. But do you remember, they put forward legislation that for any future EU treaty, there would have to be a referendum in Britain before they backed the treaty. Uh, And it was also supported by Labour, incidentally, which showed again how insecure and cautious Labour was becoming about the European Union. Now, imagine if Britain had stayed on huge rows, Farage on the rampage, and there hadn't been the in-out referendum, but there was at some point, as there will be, a new treaty. I reckon whatever government was in power at the time, that treaty would have been defeated in a referendum, because referendums are not a way to decide anything. So I reckon integration was out of the question anyway. But also, politically, it's very interesting looking back. Britain usually gets its way on these things. The Maastricht Treaty was an integrationist treaty. Britain opted out of several key elements, the single currency, the social chapter. It didn't, in the end, please the Eurosceptics, who were still furious about the Maastricht Treaty. But we were, Britain, opting out of a lot of any integrationist instincts sometimes to our cost incidentally so but chris makes the point really that referendums are a poor guide well i don't know if this was the point he was meant to be making but it doesn't really give guidance as to the precise sequence to follow a referendum what did it tell us about the form of brexit that was 
supported in 2016 that silly referendum. Which brings us very neatly onto a question from uh, Athol Hay, who says, Steve, I share your loathing of referendums. I must have gone on about this on some earlier podcast. Having been on the winning side once, 2014, Athol's obviously writing from Scotland, and the losing side once, 2016, uh, the results were the product of the same campaigns. Lies, obfuscation, fantasy, an inconclusive outcome, and a bitterly divided electorate. Yeah, that's the issue, partly with referendums. But then there's the killer point from Athol. How then should the returning question of Scottish independence be decided, if not by a referendum, by what means? Well, while I reflect on that, I'll just read the rest of Athol's things. It's very nice. Athol says, we were at King's Place, the show, a year ago, the rock and roll politics show, and wish it could be so again. Yeah, don't don't I. Um, Yeah, a year ago, I was still doing live shows, and Athol very kindly came down. He said he travelled from Edinburgh. Wow, thank you. I hope you did more than come to the show, although, of course, it's worth the trip from Edinburgh. And, uh, of course, it's just not possible at the moment for him to travel down or for me to do the show live. But he says he's looking forward to the live stream in January instead. The live show is on January the 20th. Tickets, this is me talking, not Athol. Tickets are on the King's Place uh, website now for you to uh, get hold of them. Anyway, he says, hope once we've all had the jabs, the Edinburgh Festival can happen and we can all meet up there. Yeah, fingers crossed, although... Who knows? Who knows? Now, I was playing for time because Athol's question is a killer one. If not a referendum, by what means? I don't know the answer to that question. All I do know is that referendums never solve anything. Look at Europe, for example. A referendum in 1975, big majority to stay in. By 1980, five years later, the Labour Party, who had been in government when the referendum was held, had a policy to leave the European Union, or common market as it was. And look at Brexit. As I said in my preamble, it's not done. By miles, it's not done. The referendum was years ago. So I I don't know how you resolve these things, but referendums are really clumsy devices. And on that same kind of topic or related, we had a lot of great questions from Nick Radcliffe. Uh, Nick's a runner, by the way. He runs miles, uh, five miles sometimes, Four other times. But he gives us a sort of on-the-ground report from Scotland. Now, there's a lot about this kind of links to what uh, we'll be talking about more later, about independence and Ireland and so on, which are going to be running themes in 2021. But we're ahead of the game. Our our audience uh, uh, is ahead of the game. Us lot. When I say our, I don't mean the royal kind of plural, our, we. Anyway, over to Nick, who says, As an Englishman who's lived in Scotland for 25 years, Starmer's position on Brexit looks like a gift to the nationalists. Of course, Starmer voted for the deal on that debate on December the 30th. I've personally opposed independence as divisive all my life, but Brexit has fundamentally altered the equation. It's no longer a question of being part of Britain or not, but rather being part of the European Union or not. I think people south of the border struggle to understand the enormity of the rupture up here. Scotland hasn't felt so betrayed or ignored since being used as the testing ground for Thatcher's poll tax. Do you agree that independence is now almost inevitable? 
Uh, Nick asks a whole range of uh, questions, uh, uh, some of which we will return to on another podcast. And I hope you're enjoying the run today. I bet it's freezing, uh, Nick. But it's it's thanks for your on-the-ground report. This is from somebody who has been opposed to independence, but now since it is coming and that Brexit has fueled it. However, I don't think it's inevitable for a very simple reason. I think we've covered this in the podcast before. Johnson will not call that referendum if he fears he will lose it. Prime Ministers never call referendums if they think there's a chance they'll lose it. Cameron was stupid because he called one on the assumption he was going to win it, which was quite a miscalculation when you think about it. The polls suggest if there were a referendum soon, certainly this year, Nicola Sturgeon and independents would win. And on those grounds alone, even if she wins every seat in the Scottish Parliament in the elections uh, later this year, Johnson won't grant her that referendum. Now, I accept that will fuel the anger and sense of being ignored or betrayed in Scotland. And I imagine the anger will be more intense, actually, than over the poll tax, uh, which was... The reason it went to Scotland early, the poll, to, I'll talk about it another time, but it was quite complicated. It wasn't, uh, Thatcher misunderstood Scotland wholly. But anyway, another time, the poll tax. But I sense that perhaps the angle will be even greater uh, if the SNP sweep the board and there's still no referendum. But I don't think there will be. Oh, there's another related question to that, actually. So why don't we deal with that at the same time uh, on Scotland? And I'll just find it. Hold on a second. Yeah, here it is. Uh, Dear Steve, uh, your book has been a cracking read. Oh, thank you very much. I'm just about old enough to remember the era of Harold Wilson and Ted Heath. Well, if a year ago when we could all go to live events like rock and roll politics at King's Places kind of history. Uh, the Heath-Wilson era is that we're in medieval times, really, but there's a lot of parallels with now and lessons of leadership. So I'm pleased uh, you're enjoying the book. This is from Janet Ireland. She says about Scotland, recent polls have shown an increasing gap between the two camps. What influence will the don't knows have on future events, given that they tend to side with the status quo? And given another choice that we didn't get the last time, vis-a-vis independence. How might Keir Starmer's reinvented Devo Max change things? Now, that's an interesting question. In the midst of the whole Christmas period, Starmer, somewhat mistimed, really, uh, gave a speech about his review of the Constitution and that Gordon Brown would be involved and all the rest of it. Uh, Nobody noticed, uh, or very few did, because it was Christmas, the killer virus was raging, etc. And, you know, in that context, you know, oh, let's drop everything and reflect on the Constitution. Uh, but it is an interesting move by him, not least bringing Gordon Brown in. Brown has his flaws, but he is brilliant at those famous dividing lines of his. Uh, you know, he used to do it when he was Chancellor and Shadow Chancellor. The dividing line is between Labour, who believes in productive spending, versus the Tories, who waste money and believe in unproductive spending. It's not high spending versus low spending. It's efficient spending versus wasteful spending. All very clever reframings of debate to Labour's advantage. And he knows Brown better than anyone that the dividing line in Scotland at the moment is seen as a terrible Westminster government or independence. And while it's that, independence will flourish. So Brown and others will try and reframe the debate between independence and a new uh, revised modern constitution 
possibly a form of federalism. And how that will play out, who knows? But in the short term, as we've already reflected with Nick's question, it looks as if the independence argument is going to triumph in May. And managing that from Johnson's perspective will be extremely challenging. But Starmer has an interesting different route on which he's about to embark. Let's see, but Scottish Labour are in such trouble and it's quite hard to see them recovering. Anyway, thank you for those questions. We'll uh, come back to a couple at the end, if that's okay with you. I just want to reflect on the pandemic and its echoes with Brexit. So we have the kick the can down the road Brexit deal, trade deal, where all the thorny issues remain in place. Uh, But anyway, it was signed off and hailed as a Churchillian triumph. And we have the same approach to the pandemic. The Ma interview on Sunday with Johnson was interesting because Johnson hinted at further tough measures to come. He didn't deny for one second that further tough measures were to come. But he struggles to make them. Each time he announces things late. So by the time you hear this podcast, I suspect there will have been probably another U-turn over schools opening and perhaps much tougher measures in place. If they aren't in place by the time you hear this, I can tell you they will be in place pretty soon. But everybody who kind of follows the evidence is screaming for this to be done now, not out of some pleasure about closing down the economy, but because there is no other option. So I noticed uh, Jeremy Hunt, uh, chair of the Health Committee, former Health Secretary, tweeting very emphatically and slightly out of character. You know, he's usually rather laid back and polite. Do it now. Lock down now with loads of evidence as to explain why. All the scientists are doing the same. And this variant is clearly causing huge concern. But as ever, Johnson kicks the decision down the road. He cannot quite get there at the appropriate speed. And we've lived through this so many times. And it was very interesting hearing interviews, painful, hearing interviews with parents agonising over whether to send their kids to school uh, in the areas where schools are open. uh, Because the government can't make the decision. They've devolved the agonies to individuals. And this has happened so many times. You know, uh, looking back, it's so... The parallels with early March. You know, I remember being in agonies about whether to go to a book festival in Glasgow. I couldn't believe the festival was still open. It was still happening. Uh, Everyone I bumped into said, oh, this virus is spreading like a fire. You've got to be careful. But the festival was open. We got on the train. Uh, The festival organisers were in agony in Glasgow about whether to close it or not. But they, no government was saying you should close it. And halfway up, it was in Preston. I got a message that the thing had been cancelled and uh, turned round one of the early silly days of the pandemic but that's a trivial example uh, how the decisions are devolved to institutions to individuals because the prime minister and it is the prime minister cannot make up his mind speedily one of the qualities of leadership is to be able to act quickly and he can't do it. He couldn't do it over Christmas. He couldn't do it in September when Sage were telling him to, in effect, lock down. And he's delayed again now. Uh, not, I suspect, for much longer. But there we have a delay 
as things get worse. So the parallels are so precise. It's like reliving every bloody month, the kind of film noir where the same mistakes are made again. Uh, no lessons learned as uh, kind of the country moves towards danger once more, is in danger. Anyway, by the time you've heard this, I suspect there would have been more announcements because the pressure on the government is huge. But a pattern forms. Can kicking is the style of Johnson's leadership on these huge historic issues, Brexit and the pandemic. Anyway, let's have a look at some more of your questions because they have been flying in. And um, there's one here from Noah Key to ask a really interesting question. This comes back to the sort of issue of accountability, really. Uh, my question concerns the importance of select committees. Have they fulfilled their role over COVID and Brexit? What significance, if any, do they hold, not least when the government has an 80-seat majority? Are there any select committees you believe we politicos should pay extra attention to for legislation which goes through Parliament in 2021? There's no doubt that select committees have achieved a greater prominence in recent times. The chairs, I think, are paid quite well to chair these committees, so and they used never to be uh, paid extra. And they have a platform, and the media gives them a lot of attention. So Jeremy Hunt is on the airwaves virtually daily, not just because he's a former health secretary, but because he's chair of the health committee, to give one example. Hillary Benn managed to drive quite a lot of the uh, intelligent opposition to Brexit via his position of chair of that Brexit committee. But whether the government with a majority of 80 has to pay any attention to them is very questionable. Uh, basically, they don't. With a majority of 80, you can do more or less what you like as a government and as a prime minister, as we've tended to see Johnson do, until you get into trouble. When a government or a prime minister, I mean, of course, on one level, Boris Johnson is in deep trouble now, but he's not at that phase yet where people are seriously clamouring for him to go or one from his own side or wondering whether he will go soon. I know some do, but it's not that kind of permanent, incessant background buzz as there was with Theresa May and John Major, and to some extent, uh, for Gordon Brown, actually, with all those silly attempted internal coups against him. Uh, so while he has that majority, the select committees can have influence. We see it today. I've just mentioned Jeremy Hunt tweeting away about the lockdown, but they have much more power when there's a hung parliament and can shape events because a government hasn't got a majority. So uh, that majority of 80 is a massive buttress. December 2019, that election has determined things because a government with a majority of that size has huge freedoms that Cameron May could have only dreamed of. Um, so it's a, it's, it's, it's a good point. So let's move on uh, to another separate question. This one is on the implications for Ireland. It comes from uh, Jeff Strange, who points out that Dublin has already, I mentioned it earlier, funded the Erasmus scheme uh, for Northern Ireland, along with the health insurance. Uh, also, Sinn Féin have argued that Northern Ireland should follow the Dublin protocols when it comes to COVID regulations. Yeah, basically, Northern Ireland as a result of Brexit, and that protocol still has to be fully worked through, is in a different place from the rest of the United Kingdom, and in some ways is moving closer to Ireland. 
still part of the European Union. And the whole issue of the United Kingdom, Scotland and Northern Ireland, will be a running theme in 2021 and beyond. Again, another example, this being a consequence of Brexit, that Brexit isn't done. Uh, Peter White wrote a nice long email. He listens to the podcast at about five in the morning walking his dog. Good kind of 5.40, I think it was. Good early start. And he listens also to BBC Sounds, which has this whole backlog of uh, fantastic old programmes. And he listened to one I did. I've completely forgotten I did it. When Nick Clegg was Deputy Prime Minister. It was interesting, really, the rise of Clegg. Only an MP for five years and suddenly Deputy Prime Minister and the first Lib Dem to take his party into government. And, and uh, anyway, Peter asks whether things would have been different if Clegg had pulled out of the coalition early as a matter of principle in protest against something? Would it have been different for the Lib Dems? Quite possibly, because the Lib Dems still suffer to this very day from the consequences of that coalition. But I suspect for Nick Clegg, the Sodes were seen very early on, when all the commentators were hailing this brilliant new partnership of Cameron and Clegg, Clegg's decision to support the tripling of tuition fees when his manifesto said they were going to abolish them uh, haunted him for the whole of the period and became sort of emblematic, really, of the coalition attitudes towards him. And I think even if he had pulled out after three years, uh, the Lib Dems would have struggled and will continue to do so. One of the things they need to do as a party is to debate and reflect on the lessons of that coalition. When parties suffer electoral traumas, they usually have deep internal debates. Well, I haven't heard one within the Liberal Democrats. They've kind of tried to move on. Maybe they've had it, but they're so small at the moment. People haven't paid any attention. But there are lessons to be learnt about that uh, period of coalition, which I suspect still have to be clearly thought through. And of course, their current leader, uh, Ed Davey, who is a decent guy and uh, has cabinet experience through that coalition. And cabinet experience should be a massive advantage to a leader. It's one of the problems with uh, Blair and Cameron that they had had no cabinet experience. But for him will probably be a disadvantage because of the association with that coalition. There are loads more questions I would love to ask, but I've sort of resolved it's best if uh, we stick to around about half an hour. And so I'm going to stick to that and keep the questions to be asked next time. Great one from Venetia Kane, who's knitting whilst listening, and uh, she makes a very good point about levelling up and what it means. That's going to be a big theme this year. Uh, a fantastic one from James Daniels about Labour councils, why they were pretty left in the 80s, but more pragmatic under the Corbyn era a sort of interesting switch and a glorious question which will take a bit of time and i'm going to come to it uh, from ian jones i don't know if all of you or some of you listened to the 
festive Christmas podcast when I reflected on one of my favourite interviews, uh, and it was between Brian Warden and Tony Benn in April 1981. Uh, it was a classic battle of two giants. Uh, it's By the way, people have emailed and said, where is it? Where can we see it? I don't know. I just couldn't remember it. It's not on YouTube. Anyway, Ian uh, remembers a precise exchange. We haven't got time to do it now, but I will do it uh, when there's a less immediate things to reflect on because it's brilliant and shows why it was a good interview and shows why the issue of that interview accountability uh, a theme that Noah referred to with the select committees is so potent and so potent in relation to Brexit and indeed Covid the two themes well Covid's going to dominate the coming week Bre Brexit won't so much in the coming weeks but I can tell you it's still there thanks so much for listening today it's brilliant to be back again for 2021 and don't forget book your tickets for the live stream rock and roll politics live at king's place it's on the king's place website it's live at seven o'clock on january the 20th and i'll be back with all of you next week keep those questions coming keep fit we've got a lot to get through in the coming year thank you